2: Good morning, this is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, once again, our good friends at Miami Book Fair have brought us another interesting author. And this time we have Josh Levine, the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Our guest today is Josh Levine, and he is the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. And is a fascinating account of American racism and an expose of the welfare queen myth. And uh, he will be at the Miami Book Fair on November 23rd. Uh, it's a Saturday and at 4 o'clock. And uh, there'll be a discussion of with Elizabeth Flock, reporter and producer for PBS NewsHour. Um, and the book has been very well received. It's said, Washington Post said, it reads like a detective story and uh, Daily Beast called it one of the most outlandish, true crime capers of the season. And I guess maybe to put this book in context, as we jump in and give our guests the chance to speak, is that um, imagine a story about Bernie Goetz where he was just described as a turnstile jumper. Well, um, Josh is gonna tell us why. the story of the welfare queen is actually much more complex, um, but it has a lot of political dynamics. So um, why don't we start, Josh, with explaining who is the welfare queen?
3: Thank you for having me. And yeah, Linda Taylor in 1974 was written up by the Chicago Tribune as a woman who got public aid in the state of Illinois under multiple different names despite the fact that she was driving a bunch of luxury cars, including a Cadillac, that she was about to go on a Hawaiian vacation. She allegedly owned all of these buildings in Chicago. So they made it out like she was, uh, you know, somebody who was gaming the system in this really obscene way and hadn't been punished for it. And then within a couple weeks, the Tribune started calling her the welfare queen. And that term... In connection to her, really caught on. It was used by media outlets across the country, and Taylor became this infamous American villain in
2: the mid nineteen seventies. And what's interesting about it is um, there there was a reasons why she became the villain, and in you know, large, some, some, one of them, which is is her race.
3: Yeah, she was. Um, portrayed as somebody who could actually change her race, that she was kind of chameleonic and that she was a shapeshifting con artist who could represent herself as black or white or Asian or Latina, depending on what her target was. And um, she was predominantly, you know, in the context of this welfare fraud case seen as black though. Um, And this was a time when welfare in the United States was extremely racialized. Just the term welfare kind of connoted poor black recipients. And that was because in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, and there was also a related welfare rights movement, a lot of people of color were granted benefits that they had been denied before. And so even though um, black people were not the majority of welfare recipients, this notion that it was a quote unquote black program really took root. And the fact that Taylor was then seen as this notorious welfare cheat rendered uh, all welfare recipients, but I think particularly black ones um, suspicious in the eyes of, of many, uh, many Americans.
2: And, and that's an important point to highlight, is that um, it was white Americans who were the majority of welfare recipients, even though um, that was not how it was portrayed politically.
3: Yeah, that's correct. And uh, there's a scholar named Martin Gillens who has a book called Why Americans Hate Welfare. Uh, and in that book, he documents how between the 1960s and the 1970s, the proportion of photographs in uh, news magazines in stories that are connected with poverty just shifted dramatically. That poverty was depicted as white in the 1960s. Um, this was Ready kind to of do a podcast with for your business? Arrington's the other America, right. um, this notion of poverty as being a rural white issue. And then, again, in the aftermath of the war on poverty, the civil rights movement, riots and, and Watts and elsewhere, um, you see poverty being coded as black. And the actual statistics, the numbers don't shift at all. The percentage of, of um, you know poor Americans is not going through any kind of dramatic change. It's just the perception. And then in the 70s, um, you know, in these magazines, when there's articles written about poverty, it's all Black people that are, that are depicted in these images. And so, you know, that is definitely a part of this Linda Taylor story.
2: And it became a national story when Ronald Reagan incorporated it into his campaign speech in 1976.
3: Yeah, that's correct. So Reagan and his advisors saw the news coverage of this and i think correctly intuited that it would be a really powerful anecdote that he could use on the stump as governor of california from 1967 to 1975 he had pushed through some pretty strict um you know controls in the welfare system there and so when he decided to run for President, he wanted to run on that record, and he also wanted to establish to his uh, his voters or people that might be inclined to, um, you know, listen to what he had to say, that welfare abuse and fraud and cheating was a major problem in America. And so he cherry picked this anecdote, um, and he would say that there was a woman in Chicago who gets welfare under all these different names, and he quoted a figure of $150,000 in a single year, which was a a really exaggerated sum. And crowds were shocked by this. They would gasp. And it really helps submit um, Taylor as a villain, but also this idea that welfare cheating was this huge problem in America, and that Reagan positioning himself as the one who could solve it.
2: And how, how much had Taylor received?
3: So there was a huge gap between um, the political rhetoric around Taylor and her uh, welfare fraud and the actual facts on the ground. So she was ultimately uh, indicted for um, taking between $8,000 and $9,000 total over a period of several years. The prosecutor said that was um, all that they could prove. So they weren't convinced. That it was only that amount an estimate that i saw um, put the put it more around like forty thousand dollars again over a period of many years so uh reagan saying it was hundred fifty thousand dollars in a single year he didn't invent that figure himself he got it from uh state officials in illinois but those officials themselves had no like and factual basis as far as i could find for Citing that that figure, and so the you know it's it's important to note that Taylor did actually commit welfare fraud. She did not commit fraud to the extent that um, Reagan said that she did, and the welfare fraud uh, that she committed was not at all representative. It was an outlier case, and it also obscured other crimes that she committed that um, I believe were far more serious.
2: Although a lot of those crimes happened later. Right.
3: Um, There was a a mix, actually. So um, she was uh, accused. She was arrested for kidnapping in 1967, which was before. Before. Yeah. She was arrested for welfare fraud in 1974 In 1975, when she was out on bail after um, the welfare fraud charges. So just a year later, she was accused of homicide. Um, A woman that she was living with died under mysterious circumstances. Um, and so there were, she was a career criminal. And so she was someone who started, you know, her rap sheet began in the 1940s and it continued, um, you know, for decades after this welfare fraud um, charge and ultimate conviction. And one of the things I did in the book was I um, found out what happened to her after she was convicted of, welfare fraud because she had just kind of disappeared. Nobody had really tracked down what had happened to her and what the
2: real story was. And in fact, um, because she had disappeared and because Reagan continued to use this as a political story in 76 and then in 80 when he ran successfully, there was almost there was a belief in, in some media, liberal media, that this person didn't exist. That it was just someone Reagan had invented.
3: Yeah, that was fascinating to me, looking at the coverage. Um, You know, I started reporting on this in 2012 and finding that despite the pretty voluminous, you know, body of um, reporting on her in the 70s, that, you know, in the early 1980s, people were writing that the story was entirely fictional, that Linda Taylor never existed and I think that was the the reason that that writers said that was just because of Reagan's reputation and record of exaggeration you know we've already talked about about it in this conversation and so Reagan was not really being given the benefit of the doubt for understandable reasons and yet um, the fact that you know Taylor was forgotten Erased from history, I think actually served to dehumanize her. And, um, you know, other women who came after Taylor were also known as the welfare queen. She had kind of uh, successors. Um, and there was just this lack of curiosity about her as a person, both from the political establishment and from writers later who were seeking to discredit Reagan.
2: Well, because she gave life to a stereotype.
3: She did give life to or a, a trope stereotype that
2: they wanted to push.
3: Yeah, and it was really pernicious the way in which she was used and the way that this one outlier story was um, you know deployed to make it seem like poor people were um, you know getting rich of public benefits, which is just extremely untrue and was used to actually cut public benefits. You know, when Reagan became president, he would tell the Linda Taylor story as a way to argue that, um, you know, food stamps and aid to families with dependent children needed to be cut because these programs were allegedly beset by abuse. And so, yeah, the Taylor story, the way that it was told was, um, you know, actually extremely harmful. Um, And yet the story uh, of Taylor, you know, the way that it was kind of sanded down. If it had been if Reagan had mentioned, which he didn't, that she had been accused of kidnapping and murder, I think it it would have been more clear to the people hearing that story that Taylor was not representative, that she was this outlier and that she didn't kind of stand in for anyone but herself.
2: And then that's why I opened it with Imagine you know, Bernie Getz being known as a turnstile jumper and not for the, you know, being, being the, you know, who he was um, in terms of shooting kids on the subway. But this is, um, you know, here's someone who's actually had a life of crime and is, is known for a, a rel- relatively minor uh, offense in relation to her, the other offenses
3: yeah so taylor's victims um you know she had institutional victims she was taking money from the public purse but also you know the the woman that she was accused of killing um was a black woman who lived on the south side of chicago at a time when um you know there were more murders around that time there were 970 in a single year far more um, than in any other year in the history of Chicago, and the you know mainstream, predominantly uh, white journalistic institutions of Chicago didn't think this was particularly interesting or, or a scandal that this woman was killed, and so um, the welfare queen image was so powerful, and this idea of welfare fraud was so um, uh, you know con- considered such a violation that it even could overwhelm um, a potential murder. Um, and I found that just to be totally um, shocking. And yet um, that's Linda Taylor's story.
2: And why, why didn't the press jump at the story? I mean, here's someone who, who had, had definitely sold a lot of newspaper copy, um, you know, a front page coverage of her, her trial. Why, why wouldn't the press want to publicize this further?
3: There were isolated stories about kidnapping charges and about the homicide allegation, but they just weren't followed up on. And they never made it into the national press. And I think that was partly because of the way that Reagan told the story. He didn't include any of that information. And so when Taylor became a national figure, these other allegations weren't really attached to her in a prominent way, but I think um, it was because uh, you know her victims were not people that were broadly um, really cared about or seen as important, and they didn't you know really the, her, these allegations didn't really fit into this larger national story or idea. Um, there wasn't kind of a larger point to be made um, about it, and it actually weakened the larger point by making it clear that Taylor was an outlier. So she fits into this this idea that welfare abuse, welfare cheating is kind of causing economic problems in in America, that it's making the hardworking American taxpayer um, poorer. Um, And that idea was really appealing to people at a time when the economy was really bad. And so that was the story that was told.
2: Yeah, I mean, 1980, you had the recession. And in 76, when you know, Reagan emerged in the challenge against Ford, you had a lot of high inflation, a lot of um, you know, there were oil shocks, and um, the economy was rattling from the uh, re- removal of the price controls imposed under Nixon. And, and there was a lot going on in that era. And then just the whole dramatic change that had happened in in terms of, you know, the political shifts with the civil rights for um, African-Americans and women. Um, You know, Reagan kind of appealed to a certain sense of racial resentment.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you make a great point about um, the inflation and oil shocks in the mid 70s. It was a time when a large proportion of the American populace was looking for somebody to blame for um you know wasn't the most happy time in america and the poor you know people who don't have that much of a voice in uh, the media and political life were a convenient target it's reminiscent to me of a lot of the rhetoric around undocumented immigrants today where you have people who um you know even in communities where immigration isn't really that prominent where there aren't that many immigrants, it's still kind of powerful political rhetoric to blame immigrants for um, whatever problems are in the the community, economic issues. And so, you know, I think that's just a trend that recurs throughout American life, even if the target changes.
2: So what made you want to, uh, I guess, unmask or revisit the Welfare Queen?
3: fascinated by American political history. And I had not lived through this period. And I had known the term welfare queen, but I hadn't known that it had originated with and been connected to one person in particular. Um, And so that just on its face interested me that I hadn't known that. And then when I went and looked back at the coverage and I saw that Linda Taylor had been infamous for really about a three year period in the mid 70s, but her entire life before that and after that was really unknown. It just seemed like, um, you know, uh, a, a really alluring task for a journalist to, um, you know, go and try to sift fact from fiction and, and figure out if there was anything behind the rumors, and innuendo behind her, and also just to try to humanize this person who had been so dehumanized. And I think humanizing doesn't mean make the person look better than they were. Um, It's actually telling the full story and the full scope of their life and not reducing it to a trope.
2: Right. Now, um, Reagan, you, I've I've seen some of your other writings where you talk about the 1980 campaign, and, and Reagan um, using racial resentment, particularly his opening speech in um, I forget the county, but near Philadelphia, Mississippi. Yeah, um, in the
3: Shoba County Fair.
2: Yes, um, you know, using the phrase "states' rights," where you know the four civil rights workers had been killed only you know 16 years earlier. Was was the welfare queen part of that speech?
3: She was not a part of that particular speech. She was cited um, in other parts of the 1980 campaign, but it's important to note that in that states' rights speech, and in you know when Reagan would talk about Linda Taylor, he wouldn't. Explicitly talk about race. He actually wouldn't use the term welfare queen. He did use it a couple of times, but it was not a part of his standard stump speech. And so there was a kind of, you know, deniability there that um, the folks who were listening to him knew what he was talking about and referring to. Um, And Reagan would have had to have been incredibly naive not to understand what he was saying and doing. And I don't believe he was that naive, but he did have this communi- ability to communicate with people on kind of multiple levels. And I think that's what was happening with the Taylor story and with that speech in Mississippi.
2: Now you, um, you're the editor, national editor at Slate and you have a sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. How long have you been doing yep. that?
3: I've been at Slate since 2003, and I've been doing the uh, podcast
2: since 2009. And um, in addition to that podcast, you also have a series podcast on the book.
3: Yeah, it's also called The Queen, and I thought it was important to bring forward the voices of people that knew her, that knew Linda Taylor, Um, that had run across her, um, you know, her defense attorney speaks in that um, podcast as well as people that were her victims. And if you read the book, um, I think you would find the podcast to be a really great supplement um, to really hear the story in those people's own words. Um, And yeah, I was really glad to be able to do it.
2: I listened to the podcast. It was really interesting, and uh, even like hearing Clarence Page talk about you know the reporter and who broke the story and that time and it just it was it. I recommend it. You know for those, um, the book is available, The Queen, um, and um, available on Amazon and all other um, where you buy where you buy books. But the the, uh, the podcast is on it's on Slate, right?
3: Yeah, you can find it wherever you get your podcast, Apple podcasts or wherever else.
2: And um, so um, I, I know we only have a little bit of time left. I want to thank you. And uh, once again, reiterate that you will be at the Miami Book Fair um, at Miami Dade College on Saturday, November 23rd at 4 p.m. Room 8203. And you'll be talking about your new book, The Wing. So um Thank you, Josh, for joining us, and I uh, look forward to f- following you on Slate, um, and um, so good luck in Miami. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll have more Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
4: And I've worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm.
5: It passes before it's noticed. A slight rising of the eyebrows, a widening of the eyes. It may be accompanied by an almost imperceptible inhalation. The heart adds a beat like a quiet exclamation point on the experience. Within a tenth of a second, the reaction has passed, but not without leaving its mark. Someone found what they're looking for. Does your website deliver impulses to act? It can. Intended Consequences is the podcast for digital marketers who see their job as changing hearts and minds. If you're frustrated, bored, or in a rut, it's time to spread your wings with me, Brian Massey, and my guests. Find out how successful, curious, creative, and data-driven marketers are making a difference on purpose. Visit IntendedPodcast.com or find us where you get your podcasts. Intended Consequences – Marketing on
4: Purpose. Miami may be the sun and fun capital of the world, but it's also home to the largest literary festival in the U.S. Don't miss the Miami Book Fair, a week-long festival featuring more than 600 authors from all over the world with readings, signings, and panels capped off by a three-day street fair. Find books in English, Spanish, and Creole for every interest and every age, from biographies and novels to poetry and comics. This year come meet poets Richard Blanco, Reginald Dwayne Betts, and Joy Harjo. Award-winning novelists T.C. Boyle, Susan Choi, Edwidge Danticat, Taya Obrecht, Julie Oranger, Leonard Pitts, and Karen Russell. Plus, authors exploring issues of the day such as Eve Ensler, Alex Kotlitz, Danny Shapiro, Daryl Pickney, Ambassador Samantha Power, George Wilt, and hundreds more. Take the little ones to Children's Alley for hands-on activities, characters, and storytelling. Enjoy music, food, and fun for the whole family right on the downtown Miami-Dade College campus, November 17th to the 24th. For details, schedules, and tickets, visit MiamiBookFair.com. You are now tuned in This is WebmasterRadio.fm. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The
1: best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
2: With Eric Bogosian, who is the author of Operation Nemesis, the assassination plot that avenged the Armenian genocide and the claimed writer and actor um, has written several books but this is this is your first work of nonfiction right
3: That's right yeah
2: now one, one thing you mentioned is that not only were the the killings um, you know kind of retribution you know there some you know in vigilante justice for people from the Armenian genocide who, who had escaped because of the confusion of World War I. It also had a long-term histor- historical impact in that it, it cleared the way for Ataturk to assume power in Turkey.
6: Yeah, there were, that was one of the things that I was really interested in this story. Usually when Armenians or most historians talk about the Armenian genocide, they seem to see it as something happening within the borders of the Ottoman Empire or Turkey, and that's it. And, and of course, that's where most of the killings happen there and in Northern Syria. But contextualize it more, you see other patterns evolve. Very importantly, the first thing that shows up is British interest in oil in the Middle East, and their need to preserve their foothold, particularly at the end of World War One grabbing Mesopotamia, which we now call Iraq. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but the day after Talat is killed on March 15, 1921, on March 16, 1921, the country of Iraq is born in Egypt, in Cairo, uh, and friends of some of the men who aided and abetted the Armenians, British intelligence agents, a man named Aubrey Herbert and Gertrude Bell, Lawrence of Arabia, all these people are friends with each other. They are very much responsible for establishing this new country of Iraq, which, of course, is basically a big oil barrel in the desert. That's what Iraq is. It's not a real country. In the realm of the Turkish Empire itself, or the Ottoman Empire, and, and I think it's really important. I mean, the Ottoman Empire isn't some arcane topic that's off in some you know, far-off and far away from us. In fact, to understand what's going on in the Middle East today, it behooves anyone to kind of understand the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman Empire was there for 600 years. It was it was an Islamic empire run by the Turks. And at the uh, end of the 19th century, the Turks were well aware that they were losing their grip on this empire. Basically, Europe was just pulling it to pieces, and they decided that there should be some kind of progressive and modernist movement. A country that has a monarchy but also a parliament like Britain, that would be what they were moving toward. And the young Turks were the people, and some progressive Armenians were trying to get this to happen, to push the sultan aside and set up a constitutional government. And they did have a revolution in 1908, So there is this movement going on through the young Turks. Eventually the young Turks find that they kind of have a tiger by the tail and aren't terribly successful at running the country. And uh, eventually during world war one decide that somehow killing all the Armenians is going to move their chess piece across the board. They're going to take away what the Armenians own and they're going to Turkify thats their term Turkify the country. When you get to the end of World War One, all that's left is what we see today on a map we call Turkey, the Republic of Turkey. This was, this was an idea. They understood that they were going to have to let go of certain lands, and they did. Uh, first the Balkans, Greece, and then eventually the Arab states. But they wanted to start this new Republic of Turkey. And Talat Pasha, Enver Pasha, Jamal Pasha, who was also assassinated by Operation Nemesis, these men were the former leaders, but they had all been convicted of war crimes and trials uh, right after the war, and had all run away, escaped, and were in exile. The last man standing was Mustafa Kemal, who was leading the insurrection against the British. It was like an ongoing civil war that kept going at the end of World War I. He was successful. He eventually put the British and the French and the Greeks and the Armenians in a, situ- in a position where basically... This war would go on forever if they didn't if they didn't give up, and so they did give up, and Mustafa Kemal was able to initiate. Sorry about that. That's a truck <laughs> out there. The uh, Republic of Turkey, and that's the Republic of Turkey we know to this day, 1923 to the present. The thing is, is that I think it's it's pretty clear if you look at the history carefully that Talat Pasha and Ber Pasha. They saw Mustafa Kemal as a kind of a junior guy, a general who would take care of business, and then they could return to power once he had cleaned everything up and chased the Brits out. The truth is, is that Mustafa Kemal had no intention of letting them come back. And in fact, he didn't let them come back. And in fact, they were all dead by the mid-1920s, leaving one man standing, Mustafa Kemal. And if you look at Mustafa Kemal, who later called himself Ataturk, And if you look at this man carefully, you see somebody who is a a real pragmatist. And I really wonder to what degree the British wanted him in power. There had to be somebody in power, and there had to be somebody they could work with. They tried to establish a puppet sultan, a sultanic government, but uh, they weren't able to do that. Cabal basically overpowered all of them. And uh, Ataturk is, is really an amazing leader in the, in the history of Turkey, and he's re- revered to this day there as practically a god in that country. He continued to harass and kill Armenians at the end of the war in the, in the years 1919, 1920, right through this period, chasing them all into what is now the Republic of Armenia. And then the Soviets came in, and they basically protected them, and it became part of the Soviet Empire. At any rate... If you look at this from that perspective, Operation Nemesis basically does the dirty work that Kamal needed to have done. I mean, I don't know if he needed everybody killed, but he wasn't planning to let those guys back into the country. He was going to take it for himself, and he did.
2: Now, you know, obviously, you grew up with you know, your, your grandfather. Your grandfather was a survivor yes. of, of the, the genocide. And you know, growing up in the era that we grew up in, was also the post-war era we became aware of where the Holocaust and you know I just remember hearing this this never again it's never going to happen again and then you know Cambodia happens okay well that's over there and then it happens again in Europe with Bosnia and then Rwanda and you know as you being someone who has gen- genocide very much part of your your culture and your cultural identity what was it like going through the 90s when all of a sudden, you know, Samantha Powers details, you know, we, the age of genocide was, was, was in full bloom?
6: Well, it was for me, it was the sort of enlightenment for me in terms of understanding what had happened to the Armenians. My knowledge of what had happened to Armenians during World War I was, only came to me in bits and pieces and like many armenians i heard about it from my grandparents and it was almost mythic happened a long time ago happened in a faraway place right wasn't even sure where in like the middle east or something and that was about all i needed to know and here i was growing up in the united states and it all just seemed like a very bad thing that happened a long time ago when in the 90s when i was keeping track of what was happening in serbia and the other former Yugoslavia countries, it hit me suddenly that what I was seeing was had to be very similar to what had happened to my own family, and this was part of my enlightenment and need to learn more about it. I mean the truth is is that in terms of the twentieth century, we look at what happened to the Jews in Germany as almost unique, and perhaps it is. Both what happened to the Jews and what happened to the Armenians, what happens in every genocide is, is so mind-boggling. We really can't wrap our minds around it, but what the Germans did with the Jews was so it, it was so modern in the way that they right. w- they were able to streamline their killing machine. This is part of what really has blown everyone's minds ever since then, and, and, and to contemplate it, is, it's incomprehensible. But the truth is, is that what we're really seeing is technology coming in and amping up what has always been part of the way humans wage war on each other or when they invade areas. And so here in the United States, when the settlers came to—the the British settlers and other settlers came—the first thing they did was commit genocide on the indigenous people, whether it was the Spaniards in the, down in Central and Southern America or whether it was here up in North America, a uh, movement of people like moving the Cherokees out of the Carolinas to the West, the Trail of Tears. This is all typical genocidal actions. And if people die on the way as they're being moved, this was standard operating procedure in the 19th century. It was done again and again and again. People were moved, people were removed and then it reaches these peaks with the armenians and with the jews where technology comes in and a lot of the technologies were similar for the armenians and the jews use of railroad cars use of mass media to make people think that something's happening that isn't actually happening you're being moved to another place we're not actually going to kill you understanding that the world is watching you while you're doing it and so you have to create some kind of cover story which is we're just moving them over here we're not actually going to kill them all of that but the more as we move through the history from then through now it just keeps happening again and again it's it's part of war actually most genocides happen during wartime and it's it's just part of the way things happen as we look at the technology of it all this is we're seeing an ever changing landscape because technology Enhances genocide, but it also interferes with genocide because today, when we learn that something is happening like this, hopefully, you know, people tell each other and pressure is exerted, and hopefully, that something is done. Although, as Samantha Power pointed out, it's often ineffectual or comes across other issues that are political, very political, right? Right. Well, political when you're talking about, active genocide
2: you know, but not the genocide itself, that, that that's a problem. Um, you know, one thing, you, the book does a good job of explaining how this is un, not like Munich. It is because of, you know, the, the technology and it doesn't have a whole government apparatus behind it. But, you know, at the end of Munich, there, there's this kind of reflection, the consequences of what, what was done. And, and you yourself reflect on that. You say that, doesn't make what Operation Nemesis did legal. One question that surrounds these assassinations is this. If you desire a world where justice prevails, then you must rely on laws. If you rely on laws, they must be universal. Laws can't be superseded because some feel that they are wrong or because a person knows he has the right to break them. We live in a world where we attempt to achieve consistency in the rule of law. The concept of law demands it. Yet the men and women of Operation Nemesis did what governments could not. They were appealing to a higher final justice, one that exists somewhere between heaven and earth. And so sitting today, looking at what they did, you have the verdict that this is justified.
6: Yes. I think no matter how many laws we bring into play or religious commands, commandments, we have to live in the situation we find ourselves. What is happening in the case of uh, the Turks versus the Armenians during World War One, or the Germans versus the Jews in World War Two, is a very modern thing because you have leaders who can insulate themselves far above the the victims and put into motion these massive forces. Simply by their will to do it. Tala clearly, from interviews with Ambassador Morgenthau, is quite glib about what he's doing to the Armenians. Uh, I don't know enough about the Holocaust to really... I've read various quotes from Nazi leaders, but they were very careful about what they said. The, 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 the point is is that if there's any definition of evil these are evil actions and because they are structured in such a way to insulate the criminals from the crime, there may not be a legal way to get to them. And so I think you have to take each case in and of itself. And in this instance, and I talk in the book about acts of violence that I can't support, because in the 19, in the decades later, there were assassinations of Turkish diplomats, which I don't think anybody in their right conscience can really support this, because these, these men, I mean, to kill these Turkish diplomats in the 1980s, these men had nothing to do with what happened to the Armenians in 1915. They may have inherited the structure, and they may have continued to deny the, the genocide, which was reprehensible, but... To gun them down is a different, it doesn't seem right. I, no. I, I mean, I think every person has to look in their heart of what they think is right and wrong. And sometimes it is going to extend, those ideas are going to extend past whatever normal structures of law we, we've established.
2: Quick real last question. You, you mentioned early on that your grandfather said if you see a Turk, kill him. What happened the first time you <laughs> met a Turk?
6: Yeah, he, I first heard those words when I was a little boy. I was probably four years old when I first heard it. I first met my first Turk when I was a freshman in college at the University of Chicago. Somebody introduced me to this guy, and they said, he's Turkish. And today I have no idea what I thought I was thinking or doing, whether I thought I was being clever or whatever. But I, we were at lunch in the cafeteria. I leaned across to him, and I said, you better keep your door locked at night and the guy the blood just ran from his face and he never spoke to me again I I think that was not cool to say that to this student Um, what would have been more productive would be to have conversation with him about his own history because we are talking about Turkish history right but they need to know it too if they don't know it, they can't be fully who they are. And since then, especially working on this book, I've become friends with um, many uh, Turks and significant Turkish scholars who've done very, very important work, Taner Akjam being the number one on on this topic of the genocide. And, uh, you know, they need to own it. They do own it. Those people do the work that they need to do. Just like in this country, there had to be somebody who said, you know, the Indians are not bad people. We did bad things to the Indians. Here's a book, you know, Bury My Heart and Wounded Knee, or whatever yeah. the book is. And we learn. We learn what had happened. We need to learn our own history. And likewise, the Turks need to learn their history.
2: Well, it's spelled out in Operation Nemesis, Eric Bogosian. I really want to thank you for joining us. And um, I hope you do consider making it into a movie. Um, thanks again.
6: Uh, yes, we're working on it. And I'm at the Miami Book Fair, I guess, Um very soon, I think the 21st. So,
2: Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Thank you again, Josh, and best of luck in Miami where you'll be speaking at the Miami Book Fair on Saturday, November 23rd at 4 p.m., room 8203 in Miami Dade College, talking about the queen, the forgotten life behind an American myth. And um, so good luck there, and uh, everyone check out the podcast it's on Slate. And then wherever else you may listen to um, your podcast.
4: The opinions expressed on this program